everyone. Welcome to our latest episode. I am Vivian, one of the co-hosts of the Pulse podcast. Our purpose is to capture the pulse of healthcare innovation, spanning leaders across the healthcare ecosystem. Today, we're super excited to have Naomi Allen, CEO and co-founder of Brightline Health, as our guest today. Naomi is a leading entrepreneur with over 20 years of hands-on experience developing high-growth healthcare technology companies. Naomi serves on the board of Bright Health, a consumer-focused and technology-enabled health insurance company. And prior to starting Brightline, she was also the chief growth officer for Livongo and a founding team member of Castlight Health. Before that, Naomi was a leader in the McKinsey Silicon Valley office, helping to build out their West Coast healthcare practice. She holds an MBA from Stanford, GSB, and received her undergrad degree at UNC Chapel Hill. In 2019, Naomi founded Brightline to reinvent the way behavioral health care is delivered for children and families. Today, Brightline is delivering integrated care through innovative technology, virtual behavioral health sciences, services, and a collaborative care team focused on supporting children across developmental stages in their families. Brightline has raised $20 million in Series A funding led by Threshold Ventures and Oak HCFT. So super excited to have you here. Hi, Naomi. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, your background is super impressive, and I think we can learn so much from not just Brightline, but also all of your previous experiences. I guess as an introduction to everyone else beyond the background that I just gave, I'd love to talk about your path into healthcare, into entrepreneurship, and into the digital health space. I know it's a big question, but love to hear your Yeah, thoughts. of course. I'll try to remind me if I forget one of those, but I'll try to answer all three. So healthcare, I'm a, a daughter, a physician, and always thought that I would go into medicine and was pre-med in college. But then it, this was in the early 90s when managed care was really evolving. And I think many clinicians at the time were uncertain about kind of what managed care meant for the role that the provider plays determining the best clinical pathways of care. And so at the time, I sort of paused and decided to not go to medical school and really wanted to pursue learning a bit about the business side of healthcare. And so I went to Deloitte. When I was at Deloitte, I was in their healthcare practice, and I had this really profound experience, which led me into technology. When I was 22 years old, my first job out of college, and I was working actually right across the street from you guys, Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Oh, cool. And what happened was somebody had died trying to get admitted into the ER. And so Hup brought in a bunch of folks from the healthcare team at Deloitte, and we spent, I don't even know, like eight months in the bowels of the hospital tracking. This is before there was much operational technology or even really, this is kind of pre-epic rollout at HUP and there weren't many clinical records. So literally working with paper-based medical records and trying to reverse engineer, track the operations of how patients were flowing through the hospital. And what we learned that was super fascinating was there were some steps that were causing patients to not get discharged in an appropriate manner. Specifically, some lab work wasn't getting run. And so patients couldn't move out of hospital beds, which meant that the patients in the emergency room that needed admissions couldn't get admitted, which meant that the triage processes in the ER weren't getting people triaged appropriately. So it's a fascinating experience. And we had to encode just thousands and thousands and thousands of medical records in order to be able to see the patterns of the data. So, of course, being, you know, the 22-year-old junior person on the team, I had to build access databases back when that required visual basic for coding. So, in teaching myself a bit of visual basic in order to create this really gnarly operational workflow system and fell in love with technology. So, that was, you know, 25 years ago. I'm turning 47 next month. So, 25 years ago, and it's just been an incredible ride through combining healthcare and technology across the past 25 years of my career. 
That's amazing. I can't imagine what it was like back then with all the paper records. <laughs> um, Pretty different. Yeah. I guess I know there are so many steps in your career and it's all super impressive. I'm curious when you started going to startups and Castlight, like how did that start? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think I've always had a bit of an unusual career path. And, you know, you, know, you get to the stage of your career and like when you look back, there's some through lines, there's some things that make sense from a narrative perspective, but I've always enjoyed doing things that really put myself out of my comfort zone. So when I was at McKinsey, I was really happy. We were, I was one of the people that got to craft the healthcare technology practice at McKinsey. So I went to McKinsey after Stanford Business School, joined the tech team there, but really was shaping the arc of my time at McKinsey towards health tech. My last study at McKinsey, my client was McKesson, and McKesson had just bought a handful of startups, and they were combining them into McKesson's for business. And so mm-hmm. my client at the time was a serial entrepreneur named Gio Colella, and he had sold Relay Health to McKesson. So he was my client. Mm-hmm. I just started to realize that I wasn't going to be a lifer at McKinsey. McKinsey was tremendous. I had a great four years there, but I really was missing the kind of more operational work that I had done in my experience at Deloitte. Mm-hmm. And so I started just thinking about what was next for me and realized that it was the appropriate time in my, I was 34 and it was the appropriate time where I'd had enough sort of the bigger brand names mm-hmm. uh, on my resume. And I felt like I could experiment a little bit more. And so Giamani approached me and said, I'm going to leave McKesson. I don't know what I'm going to do next, but it would be fun to, to work together. And so Todd Park was leaving Athena mm-hmm. after Athena's IPO. And I think Todd and, and Giovanni and Brian at Benrock, Brian Roberts, myself and another engineer, Angela Mar and Jim Griswold, we got together and we just started thinking through what are the big gaps in the market? What are the big open areas? So we didn't have, we formed Castlight. We didn't have an idea. Mm-hmm. We thankfully had some seed funding from Benrock and, and Gio and Todd put together some money. And so we had a tiny little team it really trying to go on on an exploration of what are some big new things that need to happen mm-hmm. in healthcare. And this was kind of, pre-digital health, right? So we found a cast light in 08, April of 08. And, and there weren't really, you know, big digital health companies back then. So we didn't even have a language to fit around. I think we were kind of at the early edge of what was called health 2.0. That was the kind of the language back then. So it was really tremendous. So I had a chance to lead strategy and BD to find our MVP product offering at Castlight in, in 08. And that really got me, I fell in love with startups then. I'll probably never do anything but a startup for the rest of my career. Yeah, I guess before, you know, I can't even imagine 2008. Like, what was it like building a healthcare technology company? What was the challenges that were in that industry? Like, do people even believe in it, or <laughs> how is it? What was it like? Well, it was. I mean, it's so fascinating. I mean, first of all, it starts with there wasn't a cadre of people who knew how to do the work, right? So, I'll just give you one example. A couple of years into Castlight, I was running sales for us. So I was our first salesperson. I sold mm-hmm. I don't know four or five deals, and then I had to go build a 50 or 60 person sales team pretty quickly. And there weren't people who'd done any digital health sales. And so you're taking these people who'd done like SAP or Oracle sales and trying to teach them healthcare, or you're taking people who'd sold hospital systems and trying to teach them technology. Mm-hmm. And so we turned through our sales team like two or three times oh. <laughs> just because there weren't people who knew how to talk about digital health, right? And I'd say similarly, when I remember I cold called uh, Steve Bird, the, the then CEO of Safeway, probably... 20 times before his head of benefits, Sean Levitt, would take a meeting with us. And and so in Safeway, we talked to Sean and we talked to the Safeway team and they were excited about what we were offering. 
But then I had to then convince Cigna to give us claims data in order for us to build our transparency engine. And Cigna had never done a three-way data sharing agreement. So we had to craft these agreements from scratch where we had to convince Cigna that there actually were Safeway's claims. And we as a third party could receive claims on behalf of Safeway because Cigna was Safeway's administrator. And so crafting the data rights around a three-way data agreement had never been done. And then the last thing, which I'll say, which is really fun, is we were a bunch of healthcare nerds sitting in a room trying to figure out how to do a real-time price estimate that was based on an individual's benefit design. And I remember saying like, hey guys, why don't we just use the 270-271? We can do a real-time eligibility check, take that eligibility data and roll that into our pricing engine. And so nobody had thought about doing that 272-71 real-time ping for purposes of creating a vendor uh, or a product construct. And so we got a couple of patents for that work that we ended up doing of personalized pricing engine. So it was just the wild west. It was fun. It was crazy. And I think all the way through when I, Geo and our CFO at the time, John Doyle and I were on the roadshow when we were taking Castlight public, mm-hmm. there weren't really digital health IPOs that had happened. And so, you know, that same situation played out because we had to go inform the investor community how to evaluate a digital health company. So we had to teach the healthcare investors more about kind of the technology SaaS side of our business and teach the tech investors about the healthcare side of our business. It was just a fascinating journey all the way through. It sounds like the Castlight team is sort of like the PayPal mafia of healthcare. (laughs) (laughs) I feel so fortunate. There's a few of them, right? There are a few mafias. So having had the Castlight Mafia and then the Lavanga Mafia, it, I feel like double mafiosa or whatever that would be. Yeah. I guess moving to Lavango, like how did you transition to working there? What was it like growing it to also an IPO? <laughs> yeah, well, I was really fortunate. So I, after Castlight, I took some time off, but then I was bootstrapping a, a digital health company focused on couples therapy. So a step platform with digital interventions and then stepping into telehealth for couples. Really fun business. And I had a bunch of ex-castlators helping me with that bootstrap. And so I think that uh, I was pretty plugged into a broad a broad set of folks in the digital health community and made the hard decision. My husband and I have traded off in our career mm-hmm. who focuses on their career and who has to kind of focus on making money. So who focuses on the kind of wild card stuff in their career and who focuses on making money. And so my commitment to my husband after my eight years at Castlight was he could go run a crazy company or build something from scratch. So he went to a series A startup. And so I shut my digital health, mental health startup, shut that down and was trying to think about what I wanted to do next. And Jenny Schneider had moved over to be the president at Lavongo. So she called me up and that's how I ended up there. So yeah, really, that was just a very fortuitous timing with uh, me starting to think about what was next in Livongo, having a really great, exciting set of opportunities. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you were trading off something like work-life balance, but it sounds like Livongo was probably also, you know, not much less work than a startup. (laughs) Livongo was super interesting. I I learned something that I've learned a lot of things from the Livongo team because it was really a fantastic team. But one of the things was if you hire high performers, Yes, they're going to work hard, but you can do that with flexibility, right? So the thing that I really wanted that was important to me that I pre-negotiated with Jenny was like, look, I want to be there in the afternoon with my kids. I want to see my kids at five o'clock and I will get back online at night. I will do the work, but from five to seven 30, I really want that time with my kids. And obviously when I need to travel, I won't be on the road. I'm going to be the first person on the road. But if I'm home, like that time is sacred to me. And I just negotiated up front. You know, this is an important thing. Mm-hmm. Me in terms of my, at the time, my oldest was five. My twins were three. Wow. 
So that was the only way I was going to take that job. And so I learned that if you hire people who are internally driven and they're high performers, it kind of doesn't matter. You can give a lot of people a lot of flexibility. That's amazing. It's really inspirational. (laughs) I guess it's especially like right now, given everyone's like dealing with their kids at home and the pandemic and must be crazy finding that balance. I know we're probably going to shift to more of the behavioral piece with children and families, obviously with Brightline. I guess before we go there, are there any other key learnings from, I know you probably learned so much from Lavongo, but what is your perspective now looking back now that it's merged with Teladoc on that space in general? So I think there's maybe a couple of different questions. So what key learnings from Lavongo and then how my perspective looking back on post-merger. So, you know, in terms of key learnings from Lavongo, one of the things that I really enjoyed, there were so many things I enjoyed there, but the leadership team at Lavongo really felt like a family. We really enjoyed our leadership team meetings. We joked around, we goofed around, we had fun together. You know, when we would have leadership offsites, we did fun things in the evening. You know, Glenn and Lee and Jenny and the time our CEO, Joe Carey, they were a hard charging group of executives. Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting is those things can coexist, right? And I think that they coexisted in a really beautiful way at Livongo. Unlike other companies I've seen, I've obviously seen a ton of companies, both, you know, been in companies through McKinsey, through my Deloitte experience, advising companies, advising startups. And I do think that really having a group of people in a leadership team that you like, um, that you enjoy to spend time with, it just allows you to really have that focus when you need to focus, have the hard conversations they need to have and get alignment, right. work really hard, but still enjoy each other. So I so often see people that are early stage in businesses and they think a lot about their co-founder dynamic, which I think is important, obviously, but having that same ethos of really knowing that you're very likely going to be with your executive team through thick and thin and really putting those people carefully. I think is one of the things that I saw. And, and obviously the Lavanga leadership team, many of them were had, were people who had worked together in previous companies. Mm-hmm. That helped a lot too. And that's kind of what I've, I'm recreating here at Brightline. So yeah, with um, Imani, yeah. <laughs> I guess like for the second question then, what is your perspective looking back now? I know we probably have a whole podcast about it, but with the Teladoc and Lavango merger. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. When I saw the news, it just made so much sense to me because when I was at Lavango, you know, I think Lavanga had an incredible strength in building a huge way of driving behavior change across conditions, right? Mm-hmm. So with coaching and an app and nudges and this whole system that we called AI, AI had a really profoundly impactful approach, right? And so, and, and the numbers bore that out, right? The amount of engaged members that had a sustained reduction in A1C scores, sustained improvement with hypertension, weight loss, et cetera. And so, they really had figured something out. And the piece that was missing for us, and Jenny and I had talked a little bit about whether I should drive this internally at Livongo, but the piece that was missing was a corporate practice of medicine, right? It was the ability to drive that change engine all the way through inclusive of clinical care because they didn't have a clinical model. They had a coaching and behavior change model. And so mm-hmm. I think strategically, you know, it just made so much sense on both those organizations in terms of really that the combination. I genuinely believe that there's real strategic value in that combination. Yeah. I think there's so much potential for also just like setting a good example for future collaborations with digital health companies and providers down the road. Great. So I guess now you know, what we're here for is to learn more about Brightline. Love to hear about how that started you called up maybe Giovanni, like love to hear that story too. Sounds like you guys have a long history together. Yeah. So Giovanni and I go back now, gosh, 13, 14 years. And, you know, it's interesting while I was 
at Livongo, I wasn't really intending to leave at all. So I was having a ton of fun there. And my oldest son had had quite a bit of, of acute anxiety and it became more acute when he entered school. So when he was five, right when I was at Livongo. And so it also became very clear that he had some gaps developmentally. And so we spent kind of his kindergarten year trying to understand how to help him. And we tried to navigate getting care through the school system, but we weren't successful there. So I spent a good chunk of the year a few years ago trying to get him assessed, trying to find clinicians that were available to treat him, trying to get appointments. And this was all while Lamanga was getting ready for the IPO. And so I just was slammed. I, was, I didn't have time to sit on like 10 or 11 phone calls a day, calling all the local therapists to see who could treat his anxiety, getting their voicemail. They would call me back. I was in meetings. I had no way of actually progressing towards his care. All of it was out of network. All of it was cash pay because none of the clinicians in our area are willing to accept the $80 in-network rates that health plans are willing to pay them. And so it just was a mess. And so I had you know, an IPO. My husband's startup had just raised their Series B. My five-year-old was in kinder. My twins were three years old. We had a lot going on. Yeah. But we also, in our favor, we had a lot of resources. I have a very two-parent household, very driven mom, mm-hmm. financially able to pay for care, live in an area that's one of the half the counties of the country that has access to mental health, right? We had all the good stuff in our favor, but we just literally couldn't get our way through this in a clean way. And it was a lot of stress for our family. So this was kind of the context. And then Gio called me up and said, hey, I want to start a behavioral health company. <laughs> and I was like, well, tell me more. And so he was telling me a little bit. I'm like, look, I don't want to be one of the 22 adult behavioral health companies. If we do something, I only would leave Livongo to start a pediatric focused behavioral health company. And so I flew out, had breakfast with Annie and just chatted with her and then made the decision essentially that week. And so that was, I guess, August of 2019. And then I wound down my time at Livongo and started Brightline in October of 2019. That's amazing. It's crazy that you've experienced it personally, and it just so happened that the opportunity was there for you, and it sounds like a match made in heaven. So obviously, you have a strong track record, so I'm really excited to hear about how you grew ByteLine so quickly. I heard that you guys, during the pandemic, basically had to launch early, a couple of many months early in order to serve the need that's really growing in the pandemic. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that journey and also what it's like to go through it right now. Yeah. So maybe I'll start with the pandemic launch story because it's kind of humorous. My team knows that I, they're never going to let me go on vacation again because I go away from vacation. I come back with these crazy ideas. Mm-hmm. So we started the company in October. It was really just a couple of us. And we were working through interviewing a bunch of families, trying to make sure we figured out the real needs in the market. Didn't really do any substantive hiring of our leadership team until sort of the December timeframe. So our CTO came in December, chief medical officer, hired my, then my VP of care operations. She's now been promoted to our chief care delivery officer. So really the leadership team kind of came in together in December and January of last year. Yeah. Just about a year ago. And we were intending the original idea of the business was standing up physical brick and mortar clinics that were multidisciplinary care, but tech enabled. So we, we built a care delivery app as well for virtual care, and they were going to coexist in a hybrid care delivery model. And so we were kind of working towards a real estate play and a launch of a physical clinic in November. So November of last year, we were going to open doors in our first clinic with fast follow across the area with Massachusetts as our second market. That was the original kind of genesis mm-hmm. of the business. And so my team was working on that model. And then in April, I went on a staycation, took a week off to be with the kids. And I came back and it was like, 
guys, I just think that COVID's here to stay. I don't think that this is going to be a uh, overnight. I mean, at, the, at that time, like we just, nobody knew right. what we were dealing with. And certainly I remember having this discussion with Giovanni. She was like, we're all going to be back in school in a couple months. This is not a big deal. Let's stay the course. I'm like, I think this is a bigger deal than that. And I think that families are going to be impacted. I think there's going to be a profound increase in behavioral health. And what's nice is one of my clinical advisors, Dina Bravada, pulled up some research and she looked at what has happened in other countries when there has been a time of prolonged isolation. And so what we were seeing, which has now unfortunately come true, is that There are massive increases in depression and anxiety. Isolation leads to parental isolation leads to much higher rates of abuse, domestic abuse. And many of these things go unnoticed because kids aren't in school and they're not in their primary care doctor's offices. And so we kind of knew back in April when we looked at the research that we were going to be looking at a very profound impact on kids, on families, on incident rates of mental health. And so I came back in April and I said, guys, I think we really need to think about how do we launch earlier? And and I think we need to think about how do we launch virtual first? And so my team, to their credit, did not quit. And they, my head of engineering, my CTO, wonderful guy, and Jonathan Simon, and my first product manager, Vicky Marr, who's just a, a rock star, mm-hmm. they partnered with Romy Saloner, our head of care delivery, and they came up with a plan and they said, we'll figure it out. We're going to do this. We're going to get our corporate practice in medicine earlier. We're going to hire our clinicians earlier. We're going to train them in virtual care. We're going to make sure the protocols are safe. Our chief medical officer did just did remarkable work. Mm-hmm. So we pulled launch up by, I think at that time, it was like four or five months wow. on a different experience than what we expected. And our CTO also very thoughtfully said, like, we shouldn't do this on throwaway code. We should just make this an early launch of the foundation of the product we're going to go build Mm -hmm. because virtual care is probably going to be here to stay. And so what the team did last year on so many dimensions was just remarkable. And I'm just so proud of them. Yeah. It sounds like your leadership has really made you basically were ready for the right timing and you went to market in the right way and shifted your product in the right way. I guess I'm curious, is that something through your experiences at Castine Lavongo that you learned from what was the inspiration for pivoting so quickly? And like, how do you give advice to entrepreneurs to really shape your product to the market and how it is and go with the trends as it goes? Yeah. One of the things, so Castine was hard because we were selling something that nobody had ever thought about before. This idea of creating price and quality transparency mm-hmm. and then that shift behavior. And when we started Castlight, we decided there were kind of two paths that we could take. One was price and quality transparency and the other was care navigation. Right. Interestingly, now their Castlight's evolved into more of a care navigation business. And I think in some ways that would have been an easier path, the transparency path, frankly, in retrospect. But, but I think what was hard at Castlight was there wasn't like a deep member or human experience that we were tapping into. And we certainly had a few glimmers of that early on when we, with our first batch of consumer research, there was a executive assistant who was an employee at Liberty Mutual. Um, and when we showed her early mock-ups of the Castlight app where she could find how to get care in a lower cost way, she started crying and she said, I live with endometriosis and my daughter has a bunch of care needs. And so I don't treat my endometriosis because I can't afford both. And so we knew that price and quality transparency could really shape lives and really help people mm-hmm. if done effectively. But that experience wasn't like a daily DNA of our business. Whereas at Lavongo, Glenn's son, Sam, I've heard this story so many times, but Glenn's son, Sam, when he was seven, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And, you know, and Glenn was a super involved, it still is a super involved dad and 
spent many, many years dealing as a parent, dealing with what it means to have Mm-hmm. diabetes. And so the DNA of Livongo was just much more grounded in the actual experience of the members we serve all day long. And so I think what's really fortunate for me and for us at Livongo is that's the founding DNA. It's grounded in what is it like to have a child that's got a behavioral health need? What are the challenges the parents go through? What is the right care mm-hmm. that I wish I'd had for my son when I was going through that? And what's that wraparound set of supportive services I wish I'd had as a mom? Mm-hmm. And so we've just been really fortunate because that founding DNA, frankly, like it has permeated all of our work. And so it just allows you to be plugged into how to evolve a business and offering a product. Mm -hmm. And so we spent a lot of our time talking to families. We spent a lot of our time talking to kids. We spent a lot of time hearing from our clinicians. What are they hearing on the front lines every day as they're serving families, right? So it's just a really remarkable way to get build a business. Right. And I also have a, a lot of folks in the company that have come because of either their personal experience or experience with their own kids. And so we're just fortunate that passion has met right. a timing in the market. Yeah, that's amazing. I love how you focus a lot on culture. And I think that's something that's overlooked at a lot of these companies, like why they succeed. And I know we kind of skipped like, what is Brightline's breath offerings <laughs> for people who don't know? What do you provide to a parent today? Is it out of pocket? Is it insured? And or do you plan to sell to employers? I think that's like always a question for early digital health companies. Yeah, great question. So we have three offerings. We have Brightline Connect, Brightline Coaching, and Brightline Care. Mm -hmm. And so care, if you think about care, that was the piece that we were originally building out. Those are our care-based protocols for kids as early as, protocolized-based care for kids as early as a year and a half, all the way up to 18. And it's kind of what you would consider to be the gold class standard for care that we'd be delivered in a clinic, but we've created it all through these wonderful interactive experiences. It's virtual telehealth sessions, but we've built a bunch of digital exercises that really bring concepts to life for kids. So I'll give you an example of that. Our protocol for anxiety has uh, built into, like, I think the third session, a concept called double bubble, which means you're teaching a child how to reframe negative thoughts into positive thoughts as a way for them to self-manage their cognitive load during, if they're having anxiety. And so we've created this really fun character that explains double bubble to them. Our clinicians show the character during a telehealth session. And then we push that out through the app so that families can practice that because Mm -hmm. families that have digital interventions and practices have three times the clinical effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And so we have Brightline Care, which is a set of protocols for everything from anxiety, depression, ADHD, executive behavior, tantrums, speech delays. I think there's like, I don't know, 10 or 11 different domains that we support for kids up to age 18. And that's all on protocolized care. And so we have a whole system of measurement that wraps around that. And then we also have coaching, which is more short duration, skills-based, can be for the parents or the kids or together. Mm-hmm. And those are also telehealth sessions. And so a difference between kind of care and coaching is that if a family comes and let's say they have a 14-year-old who's having really disruptive behaviors and really disrupted sleep, some of those kids might actually have depression and they should be part of our Brightline Care protocols. We'll measure their depression. We can support them with medication if they need it. But some of those kids might have low acuity, disrupted sleep hygiene, which happens a lot of times when kids become teenagers, their circadian cycles get upside down. And so those kids and parents and our caregivers would respond well to four coaching sessions where we introduce the concepts of sleep hygiene to the parents. We have a session with the kid, the adolescent doing the same thing. We have a joint planning session for how to clean up sleep hygiene, how to set up a reward system if the child turns off their technologies, goes to bed on time, has a 
consistent bedtime routine, a reward system to reward that behavior. And then a month later, the coach would follow up with a fourth session. So that's a very typical coaching protocol for us. Mm-hmm. And then connect is exactly like it sounds. It's the connective tissue that is our app experience. It's webinars for parents and kids, asynchronous chat with a coach. And we have a content studio that's personalized for families. So really amazing three-part offering. And what I love about it is it meets families where they are. So I think about very candidly speaking in my family, mm-hmm. when we were first starting to try to get care for our son, there was a lot of stigma, very honestly speaking. My husband is Asian American and grew up in India and part Japanese and like not just stereotype, but he had a lot of different cultural expectations. Right. Do you talk about your child needing therapy? Mm-hmm. Do you talk about it in front of them? What does that mean? And so we didn't have any way to have a low stigma conversation with a coach about how to even get on the same page or to read some materials that would have been directly relevant for our care journey. And so Mm -hmm. we've just created this really nice set of essentially onboarding pathways for families, depending on how much time they have, what the level of acuity of care is they need and kind of where they are in that journey. Mm -hmm. That's been really awesome. In terms of the go-to-market, you know, I think one of the biggest things that I learned at Livongo is if you're going to sell to employers, which we do, make it dirt simple. And so The way that you make it dirt simple is you build connectivity to have the payment for the services run through insurance company relationship. And so we early on started working with leading insurers to bring Brightline in as an in-network offering on the care side and then create CPT code-based reimbursement structures for connect and coaching so that all three offerings could be run through a health plan reimbursement structure for self-insured employers. And so that's the journey that we've been on. Mm -hmm. Started with care. Now we're adding connect and coaching to our health plan relationship so that it's easy for an employer to call up their health plan and say, please add Brightline to our offering. Wow. Sounds like you know exactly what to do in terms of going to market. Uh, (laughs) It's very easy at the headline. It's actually very hard to accomplish though. (laughs) The headlines are very easy. Yeah. We know what to do. The work is in the doing like so many companies. I guess like for mental health for adults, there are a lot of companies playing that space for children and for families. Did you find it easier to sell that to payers or like what was the, it sounds like it may not have been as easy as it sounds now, but how did you convey your value proposition to employers and insurers? Yeah. I mean, I think the easy part is I think most health plans know that they have a pretty radical gap in their networks for peds. There's a massive shortage in general in behavioral health kids is even more acute. And so I'd say we've not had a hard time getting into payer conversations, but also does help that like, obviously Giovanni and I, this is not our first rodeo. We've got a lot of those relationships, Annie and Mm -hmm. the relationships that you and I personally don't have Annie and Emily and some of our partners have. And so we've been fortunate. You know, I also hired a a truly world-class health plan sales leader who knows a lot of folks. So the health plan conversations have gone very, very well. I think what's tricky for health plans is they're in the midst of trying to figure out how to deal with the new normal of what care looks like. And so we've had a lot of health plans that kind of understand on the commercial side that there's a gap in their network. And so they bring us in on the frontline care. But then we have to explain, like you can't, like the products actually are intended to work together. Mm -hmm. And the reason they work together is because there is this massive shortage of behavioral health clinicians that some of that staffing gap can be filled by coaches, right? I'm not saying coaches that are not licensed can deliver therapy, but there's a lot of skill building that's low acuity, that's essentially preventive in nature to prevent a kid with a disrupted sleep cycle from becoming Mm -hmm. depressed, right? There's a lot of stuff that coaches can do 
that really can help relieve a lot of the stress in the system, the systemic stress that happens. And so, you know, we're doing a lot of education of health plans of why the three offerings should all be funded, why they should coexist, kind of what those CPT codes are. You know, the good news is, thank heavens, that there is some innovation around this now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you take kind of where Ginger started on the adult side, where it's predominantly a digital play with some coaching, and where Lyra started on the adult side, which predominantly a, a clinician network with some matching, we're doing both of those, right? And so we've got the provider network with matching the clinical protocols, and we've got coaching and a technology experience. So we're delivering all three of those on a continuum end to end and taking that to the health plans. And so we have to kind of educate them around why all three of those work better together than just having a gender or just having a Lyra. Right. So it's a journey, you know, it's a journey to educate health plans. And some of them are faster adopters of innovation. Some of them are not, mm-hmm. but it's been great so far. Yeah. I was going to ask you about the supply of therapists, but it sounds like the solution to that is to have more care coaches, have more spectrum of care. And it sounds like each part is like a little bit more intense than another, like in terms of connect is probably more low touch and coaching is a little bit more high touch. And then actually care is where you highest end. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Cool. I know we are almost at time. Given your impressive experiences across the board, I'd love to hear maybe one area where you think there's underinvestment right now and where you think there's going to be a lot of change or growth in the next couple of years in terms of digital health. Yeah, I love this question. So I think that there's so much interesting stuff going on right now, just in terms of the infrastructure to build and launch digital health companies. And so there's smart stuff happening. So I love what Particle is doing in terms of this interstitial API middleware layers. I just love the team and what they're doing over at TruePill to create a back-end, white-labeled set of services around medication support and Mm -hmm. beautiful branded experiences. There's so many spaces that I think are interesting in terms of senior care and how do you really connect seniors in terms of loneliness, but in a clinical grade model of fighting um, senior depression, et cetera, aging in place, I think will be one of the more profound trends that we'll be seeing in the next generation. You know, just as a, as a woman approaching my 50s, I'm personally interested in next-gen aging for women in particular, right? So the companies that are starting to evolve around menopause that have combinations of therapy plus hormone replacements plus Mm -hmm. skincare regimens. Like it's kind of an interesting space Mm -hmm. that I think has got like plenty of interesting opportunities still ahead there. And then the thing that I was bootstrapping, which is couples therapy with a digital platform, I think is still like really like radically underinvested in. It was fun when I was building that, um, see how many people like told me their stories and how deeply personal those stories are. And I think that's the root of so many fun business when people are willing to call you up and say like, hey, let me tell you what's broken in my marriage because I need some help uh, or my relationship, right? So there's something there's something interesting there. Mm-hmm. You know, I think at the other end of the age range, I think the other piece is if I look at men and women who are in their early 20s navigating relationships, like the world looks really different now mm-hmm. than it did when I was in my 20s. And when I was actually starting my couples business um, for Livongo, I had a lot of people reach out to me and say, this actually is not just relevant for like people that are, have been married or been partnered up for 10 years. This is relevant for people that are actively trying to navigate what does dating look like in your late 20s and 30s? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you approach some of these less explored areas early in a relationship? And so yeah. I do think there's something really interesting about how the nature of relationships have evolved and that the therapeutic protocols, the digital interventions, the content to help people navigate relationships hasn't evolved. So there's something really interesting at that side of the behavioral health spectrum as well. Yeah. I wish you started that company before. (laughs) (laughs) 
that's my probably my next company. So <laughs> stick around. Yeah. Two, you know, two years from now, I'll be starting that one. Yeah, we look forward to that. No, I love how you touched upon a lot of exciting spaces. Through, even through the Pulse podcast, we just interviewed True Pill. We're interviewing Papa. So a lot of exciting stuff to be discussed there. I guess I'd love to wrap up. I know we are MBA podcast. So when you did have an MBA at a different school, I guess what's your advice for current MBAs interested in digital health startups or even those who are interested in starting your own companies? Yeah, I think my advice is just don't wait too long to do it. Just do it. I wish in some ways that I, McKinsey was great for me. I learned a ton of McKinsey. I'm grateful I was there. But I wish that I had actually maybe started a couple years earlier, like my early 30s rather than my mid 30s. Because I do think that it's incredibly helpful just to see multiple companies. And I sometimes, when I'm interviewing candidates, sometimes I see people who have hopped around like every year and a half or so. And I think that's too short in a startup to really see multiple cycles of things happen. I think if you're going to go into the startup world, like go into companies, be there for two or three years so that you start to get a pulse of like what's going on. And then really thinking about seeing companies that have really different types of companies. So Castlight was so different than Livongo, different investors, different leadership teams, different leadership styles. And so I think if you're going to cycle through startups, really thinking about um, going to think, things that are like look pretty radically different from each other because you'll learn a ton. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I'll say <laughs> is that I think a lot of people start companies themselves like a little bit too young, too early. And it's because they have a great idea and a lot of passion. But I do think actually seeing a few companies first, like being inside a couple of startups, just gives you so much learning, like what to avoid, what not to avoid, how to think about fundraising, when to fundraise, how to build your team. And it gives you a network. And so Mm -hmm. it's funny, when I left Castlight, I saw a bunch of people who were, I don't know, maybe two to three years into Castlight, decide to go start their own company or want to start a company. And it's because they saw the meteoric rise of an IPO and they're like, hey, I want to do that thing. But two to three years in a startup is probably not enough time to be a really successful CEO. I think you definitely need to have a few reps where you see like, oh, okay, that thing that failed, we built the team that way. We had to set it like seeing failure from multiple angles and from multiple experiences, I think is just like a really helpful thing. Yeah. As well as, you know, going to multiple companies, so you have a broader network. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's super. I, in my VC class, we actually looked at healthcare startups versus normal startups. And all the healthcare startups, the average age of succeeding was actually much older just because healthcare is like a industry where you have to have a lot of experience knowing how the system works. So that's really relevant there. I really appreciate you coming on to our podcast. Really love learning about your history at Livongo, Castlight, and learning more about Brightline, what you're building today. So thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm excited to share with everyone. Thanks a lot for the time. Great to see you.